You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. My little wheel's spinning again. I was thinking about the absolute quantity of information out there and how I think it's next to impossible for our little human brains to really consume all the information. Our our brains were designed to consume, you know, immediate facts on the savanna. You know, this is a lion, it's bad, run away kind of stuff. And now we have a virtual, it's virtually unlimited. It's not unlimited, but it's virtually unlimited amount of information available to us at any given point, locally to nationally to internationally. And it's so hard for our brains to comprehend that I think in so many ways we're going through a fit of um, cultural and probably uh, psychophysical fit as a, as a, as a humanity um, trying to figure out how to process all this information, you know, how, how to decipher exactly what exactly is important and what is not. Yeah. Back in the days of our founding fathers, it was possible for somebody to know everything that there was to know. Yeah. So it was, it was believed that Thomas Jefferson basically knew everything that there was to know. (laughs) because he had this extensive library and he had read all of the books. And so when you only have one book on biology and you've read that book, you know everything that humans know about biology, right? You have one book on medicine, you have one book on archaeology. And by reading broadly and in multiple languages, he had more or less the sum total of human knowledge, or at least the sum total of English language and French language human knowledge in his head. And the idea of that is so preposterous to our modern mind. Like the idea that you can know everything that there is to know. Because it's like, you can't know everything that there is to know about Star Wars. <laughs> it's just like that one yeah. like yeah. fictional universe has more written about it than yeah. existed in maybe all of Thomas Jefferson's library <laughs> uh, back 200 years ago, 250 years ago. And it is a bit of an adjustment, like being okay with not knowing. And I'll say that this is like an existential challenge for me because I am insatiably curious. I want to know everything about everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. It's constant frustration because I can't. Like, I I literally cannot know everything about everything. And yet I want to. It's it's just like I learn and learn and learn. And there's always more to learn. It is so frustrating. And I get, you know, I personally, I get distracted because I'm like, oh, you know, I want to read all about the psychology and, and Jung and, and psycho uh, philosophy, Jung and Kant and, um, and Nietzsche and all these greats that I've been meaning to get to that I haven't got to yet. And it's so frustrating because I've been reading about all this other stuff. And, you know, part of me is like, you know, I'd, I'd love to go uh, go back to school and get, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars in debt so I could go get a PhD in psychology because it's so sticking interesting. But of course, then I'm thinking hundred thousands of dollars of debt sounds like a terrible idea. So maybe I won't do that. Maybe I'll just read the books and not get the degree. Um, but then I get distracted. And I want to go learn about something else. You know, I want to go learn about, uh, you know, I want to go learn about physics or, you know, I want to go learn about, you know, um, you know, my, my entrepreneurship gig. I want to go re- learn more about real estate and real estate law. And it's so possible to be so overwhelmed with all, especially people like you and I who are so you know, naturally curious there's just so much good stuff out there. It's hard to stay focused and I just don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've thought about going back to school, but I, the primary reason I haven't come back to school is that I can't pick what I want to study. 
yeah, uh, exactly. You know, I I am descended from uh, college professors on you both are, sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mom's brother is a college professor. I have two great grandfathers on the other side. My dad's side, this college professor. Like I have being a college professor in my blood. But to be a college professor, you have to know a whole lot about a little. Um, you know, like you become a total expert on one specific topic and you do know all there is to know about some specific vertical. And where I'm happiest is where I'm learning a fair amount about a whole lot of things. And there's yeah, not a right. whole lot in this world uh, where that is a useful skill, <laughs> knowing a lot about a lot of things. Uh, perhaps podcasting. My, that's my hope is that maybe I can make this podcasting thing work um, because then I'll be able to study all of the interesting things and kind of distill it and talk about it and engage with listeners. Speaking of which, we are up to three official listeners. Woo! All right. So I, I I have a lot of people who text me and contact me through alternate forms. And after we posted a couple episodes ago about assigning listener numbers, um, people were asking what their listener number is. And I was like, we need to have an official way of doing this so that everyone has their own listener number. And I think, and Justin, if this is okay with you, I want to use uh, comments on libertybuzzard.com as the official. If you want to get your Liberty Buzzard number, you have to actually leave a comment on the actual website. So if that is our heuristic, if that's okay with you, I have the listener numbers for our initial listeners. Oh, yeah. And feel free to comment on iTunes, too. You know, we'd love, we'd love to grow this thing. So if That's you're right. out there and you're listening, comment on iTunes. Unless it's bad. In case, don't comment on iTunes. <laughs> um, yeah, post your negative. If you want us to respond to your negative comments, post them as a, com- uh, as a comment on the website. But Tom is listener number one. George is listener number two. And Kevin, who left a comment this morning, is listener number three of our official listeners. So if you'd like to become an official listener and get your official listener number, leave a comment at libertybuzzard.com. Thanks, Tom, George, and Kevin. We appreciate your feedback. And uh, make sure you tell your friends. Yeah, not everyone. Not everyone's posted positive stuff. We enjoyed the debate. I actually enjoy... Um, People disagreeing with us, especially when they're polite. So far, people have been polite. Um, I, I find that a lot of fun where there's some, where there's some debate and discussion and getting other perspectives. Uh, you know, I don't have the, that full knowledge, like we were saying. And so I love to get other people's perspectives because you have a unique view on the universe, unique worldview, unique perspective. And there are things that you can see that we can't see. So do leave us a comment. Um, so it looks like uh, Trump got what he wanted from NATO. At least that's what uh, he's claiming. Have you been following this at all, Dustin? You know, uh, I've got drill this weekend, Thomas, and I've been uh, running around like a madman trying to get everything ready. So you're going to have to brief me up. I have not looked at the news this morning. So uh, from what I understand, he really spooked NATO. Like they had some closed door meetings and they had like an emergency session after he left. I don't know what he threatened, but he might have been threatening to pull out of NATO altogether and just like leave them high and dry. Uh, and I wouldn't have put it past him because that's exactly the sort of thing Trump would do. And for those of you who don't know, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is the um, post-World War II alliance that we formed with our World War II allies in the countries that we conquered in World War II to protect Europe from the encroaching Russian menace. Um, and most of our military operations over the last 50, 60 years have been done in conjunction with our NATO allies. And not only that, but 
our militaries are designed to be as compatible as possible. So we all use the same ammunition. There are specific NATO bullets, and you can take those bullets and you can put them in an American rifle. You can put them in a French rifle. Uh, so if you're in a battlefield and you're theoretically, uh, <laughs> and there's a French guy in the trench next to you because everything is going wrong and one of you are out of ammo, you can hand your French ally ammunition. He can put it in his gun. Uh, we learned the hard way in World War One that having incompatible rifles uh, causes issues. <laughs> so we're like, give everyone the same the same uh, weapons. And so we also team up on research and development. So when we develop a new weapon system, we share it with our NATO allies. They share their uh, research with us. It doesn't mean that we have all of the same uh, weapons. So like they have the Eurofighter in Europe. They have their own jet. Uh, fighter that they build so they don't buy f-16s or f-22s from uh, the united states but um we do have lots of compatible systems especially in the small arms and and weapons and it it's interesting like everything is in millimeters because everyone else in nato uses the metric system except for one type of ammunition (laughs) there was no good millimeter equivalent for a 50 caliber bullet (laughs) so everything is in millimeters except for 50 caliber rounds, which I find to be fascinating. The caliber, the most useless measurement in the world, lives on in NATO in the 50 caliber round. And uh, the concession that Trump got is that the uh, our European allies in Canada will, quote, uh, dramatically increase their military funding, unquote, uh, whatever that means. So there was no specifics. I didn't hear any specifics c- coming out of that, which seems to be a trend of Trump's negotiations. He didn't get a lot of specifics from uh, North Korea either, but uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what actually comes out as, as the details get hashed out. Very true. Uh, you know, um, it, it's one thing to get a concession in words. Obviously we want to see concessions uh, in actuality, but uh, once again, Trump strikes, uh, you know, he, he considers himself the, the master of the master negotiator, you know, the, the art of the deal, uh, what have you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know because dip- diplomacy in the past has always been a closed door thing. Trump has brought it into the forefront. He's not a, he doesn't want it to be behind closed doors cause he wants credit for it. Um, and so that's, I think he completely has almost unilaterally upended the diplomatic, uh, paradigm, the diplomatic norm and he's brought everything out into the open. And uh, I think this scares a lot of European leaders to death. Like uh, Uncle Merkel, um, he he came out, and it, I really don't know the exact facts, but he, he made the statement that uh, Germany gets 70% of their natural gas from Russia, which seems a little bit like a conflict of interest. And it, and it really kind of is. The last uh, news story I think I read yesterday evening says the number is closer to 9%, according to Germany. But still... You know, 9% or 70%, big disparity in that number. However, the underlying fact remains is that uh, Germany uh, and NATO, the whole point of NATO was to defend Europe from the Soviet Union. And Soviet Union's successor, uh, the the Russian Federation led by Putin, is now selling uh, almost a tenth, if you believe Germany's number, almost a tenth of their uh, natural gas, which is pretty important for Germany in the winter, uh, to Germany. 
And so, you know, it is kind of a conflict of interest. So Trump did kind of bring a good point there. You know, he's getting a lot of flack for meeting with Putin and for saying lukewarm to almost moderately pleasant things about uh, what can only be described as a despot. Um, but at the same time, there's a little hypocrisy going on there, especially when you when you talk in, in the form of Germany. So I think he absolutely scares the world leadership to death, not only because of what he'll say, but he's also proven that he'll do it. He talked about tariffs, and then he went home and he did it. And he has thrown international trade. Um, let's just go ahead and we'll say it's it's in the spin cycle in the washing machine. Uh, international trade is in the spin cycle of the, and we're talking about in the Pacific, we're talking about in the Mediterranean, we're talking about in the Atlantic. All over the world, the United States, uh, President Donald Trump has almost single-handedly started a trade war that is going to, that is going to inalterably, for better or for worse, change how countries trade together. Time will tell whether it's a good thing for the United States or a bad thing for the United States, but there is no doubt that he has changed. It's not business as usual for him. He has changed fundamentally how things are done. And, uh, it's, 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 like I said, like I said in the last podcast, Thomas, it's really fun to watch. Yeah, it's interesting to see how Russia has handled NATO because NATO is very scary if you're Russia. There are NATO allies almost entirely encircling the most populated parts of Russia. So Russia's some of their most significant cities are within only 100 or 200 miles of military troops of NATO. Like that's that's very scary if you're Russia. And they don't want to get into a conflict with all of these countries. You know, they they would struggle in a conflict just against the United States, but the United States plus the U.S.'s allies is really more than Russia can handle. And so they've done a very clever thing. And they have made NATO members dependent on Russia for their energy. And and you were talking about Germany. You know, Germany can get very cold. Like if you don't have natural gas to heat your home, that is people dying. That is that's not like oh it's inconvenient. Oh prices are higher. That's like dead dead Germans frozen to death in their homes potentially, which gives Russia a lot of power. And how they did it was brilliant. So let's say it's 1990, uh, or let's say it's 1992. You're Russia. The Soviet Union has just fallen and. Um, you're wanting to make Europe dependent on your natural gas and your, your oil. What do you do? Well, the first thing you have to do is you need to get them to stop using their own sources of natural gas and oil. So how do you convince a country to not use its own oil supply? Well, you get environmentalists who hate oil and you get them to be as loud as possible. So Russia funded the environmentalist movement in Europe. And when the fracking boom happened, they funneled so much money into the environmental environmentalist movement that they got Europe to pass laws making fracking in Europe illegal or almost illegal where no one is doing it. So we've had this huge fracking boom in the United States. Natural gas is very cheap here. Russia is fracking. Natural gas very cheap there. Natural gas in Europe is incredibly expensive because they haven't been taking full advantage of this boom in natural gas, which is hilarious. And so the result is, oh, well, we can't mine our own natural gas, which presumably the Europeans could do much cleaner than the Russians could do. Because the Russians have a terrible track record of taking care of the environment, maybe the worst of any country ever. Uh, you know, if you look at what the Soviets did. They would purposefully pollute areas 
um, just to keep other people from using it, like what they did around Mongolia. Um, so the Russians are not exactly cleanly extracting this gas from the earth. And yet uh, the environmentalist groups that are funded by Russia are pushing it off. And, and it's kind of this shell game. It's like, oh, we'll just buy our natural gas from Russia instead of, you know, polluting our own country by collecting our own natural gas from the sea or from the various. Not that Europe has a ton of oil, but even what they do have, they're not taking full advantage of. And uh, they've tried doing the same thing in the United States. I remember there being this big push of like Russia's funneling money through intermediaries trying to fund the environmentalist movement. Because you ever wonder like, where does Greenpeace get its money? Well, uh, you have to ask who profits. Uh, so like in Texas, there's a really strong anti-gambling movement. There are lobbyist groups that are very powerful against gambling and against expanding the lottery or making gambling legal. Do you know who funds those nonprofits? Oklahoma casinos. <laughs> there are Oklahoma casinos right on the border of Texas. Like you cross over the border on I-35, you're one mile into Oklahoma, and there's this giant Windstar casino and resort. And that resort has a vested interest in making sure that there are never casinos in Texas. And so the anti-gambling movement is funded by companies that make their money off of gambling, <laughs> which I realize... <laughs> I and and I, I've talked with people in the political establishment who like genuinely are against gambling. Like they are good Baptists, and yet they are perfectly okay with taking money from casinos to fight gambling. And that's kind of how this game is played. Not to be overly cynical, and there are true believers. And I'm not saying that these the people in these environmentalist organizations. Uh, in Europe don't believe in what they're doing. I believe that they are, many of them anyway, are true believers. Like they're concerned about global warming, but they are being funded by people who are very cynically using them for their own political aims. And uh, those uh, chickens are coming back to roost potentially because by not uh, gathering their own sources of energy, uh, they're really struggling. Now I will say to Germany's credit, they have been one of the biggest spenders in solar energy in the world. Which is a little unfortunate because they're not exactly the best country for collecting solar energy. If you've ever been to Germany, it's not exactly just teeming with good access to sun. <laughs> um, you know, we have much better sun in Texas than they have in Germany. But uh, be that as it may, they've put a lot of money into wind and solar, trying to reduce their reliance on uh, foreign sources of uh, fossil fuels. So I just want to make sure I'm clear on what you said. Are, are, were you were you making the statement that uh, the Russian Federation is supplying money to Greenpeace to make uh, to to make energy in the West more expensive? And so I don't know about Greenpeace specifically. I don't know the names of the groups, but I have heard reports that environmentalist groups in Europe are funded by some of them are funded by the Russian Federation. I feel like. Russians are pretty much trolling the world. And as far as I think as far as power politics are concerned, um, I think there is probably between Russia and China, they are playing their games extremely well. Uh, Putin is, you know, I think as far as international power politics is concerned, he's a he's a prodigy. Um, but then, you know, he's an individual I think, you know, is there somebody in Russia that can replace him when he's gone? You know, that's a big question mark. China, it's not so much an individual. It's the system that is uh, producing individuals who are really genius at international power politics. 
um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, funding, inter- you know, meddling with elections and colluding with uh, Donald Trump uh, to, to, to gain influence on the national stage, or whether it's stealing intellectual property from uh, the greatest creator in the world, which is people in the United States. Um, it, yeah, I think these two countries are very Machiavellian in their outlook. Um, and so trying to take a quote-unquote principled stand against them uh, with things like the Paris Accord and the Kyoto Protocol, etc., 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 we're only answering ourselves. No, I'm not saying it's not important to protect the environment. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. I'm just saying, just like you said, it's it it, it makes us it makes it difficult for us to uh, compete politically internationally with these powerhouses that are China and Russia. When people say that Putin is a snake, uh, they are more accurate than they know. And to understand what that means, you have to understand Russian history. Russia has the unfortunate geographical reality that they don't have any real borders. So a real border is like what France has. If you want to invade France, you have to go over the ocean or over the mountains. And their borders or over a river. And their borders are very real and they're very defensible. And France has had more or less the same shape for hundreds of years. It just makes sense as a country. It was a province in Gaul called Gaul 2,000 years ago, more or less the same shape. It makes sense. Russia doesn't make sense. It's big and flat and rich. And they have attracted invaders for thousands of years. And, you know, they were the, you know, conquered by the Mongolians and ruled by the Mongolians. And it was awful. And then they were invaded by the French. And it was awful. They were invaded by the Turks. It was awful. They got invaded by the Germans twice. And it was awful. And so they are very afraid of being evaded again. This is like the one geopolitical reality of Russian leadership is that you have to keep Russia from getting invaded. And how do you do that when you have no real borders? You don't have mountains, mountain passes to defend, right? No one wants to invade Switzerland because it's a nightmare. Every mountain and bridge and, you know, they've tunneled and it's just the worst. Russia is flat and easy to invade, at least as long, at least it seems easy to invade. This is the trick of Russia, by the way. Uh, it always looks easier to invade. You're like, oh, the troops are incompetent. The land is flat. We'll invade it. No problem. And then you get there and you're like, this is amazing. And then winter shows up and you're like, what just happened? This is awful. <laughs> Gen- general winter. Uh, but you have to realize that while the Russian winter is very scary for us and we make jokes about it, never get in a land war in Asia, the Russian winter isn't nearly as scary to Russians because they look at their history and they're like general winter has never scared anyone from invading us when somebody wants to invade us they'll do it against all counsel because it looks really easy and so russia tries to look as big and scary as possible why because they don't want to be invaded they're like a rattlesnake why does the rattlesnake you know shake its tail and make a lot of noise and hiss and look very scary because it's mean and aggressive and wants to kill you No, actually, the rattlesnake does that because it's afraid of you. It's wanting to scare you away. And I think this is a um, reality of Russia that Americans don't realize. And it's something that we need to be very careful because fear is a more powerful motivator often to be aggressive and violent than greed is. Somebody's doing it out of greed. They're very calculating. They're very careful. They want to make sure that the return on investment is worth it. 
Or somebody who's afraid isn't necessarily acting in a rational way. And we have to be very careful not to scare Russia too much because of how terrible their history is. You know, if you've been raped and pillaged by the Mongols for 400 years and like your whole nation state exists because you had strong leaders who kept the Mongols at bay and were able to aggressively push out the borders of Russia. Um, and that's like what your understanding of leadership is. You know, we have to handle Russia with finesse. And I don't know if we've been doing that particularly well. <laughs> I feel like we have been snarling at them and they have been snarling back. And um, I, I felt like we did it very well during the Cold War. Like somehow we kept from destroying the planet, which, you know, props to the leaders of both countries that for 40 years we were able to point guns at each other and not fire them. Um, but I don't know if we have that finesse now. Uh, it's, it'll be very interesting to see how the next few years play out. I think the sense of urgency, nah, sense of urgency is not the right word. Uh, probably abject fear of the concept of the Cold War concept of mutually assured destruction always ensured, especially after the Kennedy Khrushchev uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 60s. I think, especially after that incident, I think the, the, both, all sides were so scared of a nuclear war that it always ensured a modicum of or just a sense of somewhat civility in there. So, you know, you're going to push, but you're never going to push too far because you never know how close you're going to get. Because most people don't realize that the Cuban Missile Crisis in the United States, we were we were really, really close to an all-out uh, war with Russia. I mean, it was... People don't understand how close we were to a nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, people who are familiar with the matter understand, but most people just aren't well that well-read into the matter. And if you read into the matter, it's absolutely frightening how close it came. And uh, so, you know, my, my very amateur opinion on it, without having done a lot of uh, historical research beyond that, is just that after that incident, um, there was always just a little modicum of civility in there just to make sure we never got that far again. So even uh, when Russians invaded Afghanistan and there was a lot of rhetoric from our side, uh, and you know, same when we uh, when we you know supported uh, uh, Vietnam in the '60s, uh, there was a lot of rhetoric from their side. The rhetoric only went so far, and the meddling uh, on either side was only went so far, and it was very very covert. So we only very secretly and very covertly helped the Afghans. Uh, it was uh, only very late in the war did we supply them with Stinger missiles to uh, to assist the Afghans, and it was it was made sure that we were not directly implicated, and we only found out about it many many years later uh, on, on a wide appeal. I did want to mention something, Thomas. Uh, you know, having a history degree, having spent a lot of time studying Russian history when I was in college, because I found it fascinating. Um, and my heritage on my mother's side is Slavic, Czechoslovak. And uh, so, you know, it's a personal thing for me, but the word slave, if you look, and I'm, my, my reference here is uh, etymology online or uh, etymonline.com. The word slave uh, is directly from the word Slav, which is from the Slavic peoples, which is not just Russia, but we're talking about a wide swath of Central Europe. And it starts all the way back from the Vikings. The Vikings used to raid specifically every raiding season in the summer. They used to raid into the Slavic regions specifically to get uh, slaves from that region. And so the, the etymology is linked and it's really, it's really interesting uh, to see how that played out. So what you said about it, it being a, uh, uh, Russia being a country of no borders, it extends into all of Central Europe. So we're talking about the Ukraine, 
we're talking about Poland. Uh, Poland's been run over, you know, however many hundreds of times throughout uh, modern history. And I'd say modern history, I say, you know, uh, past 2000 years. Um, and, you know, Lithuania and all those Slavic Central European countries have been the same. They've just been, they've just been large battlegrounds. As a matter of fact, back in the thousands, Ukraine was actually the dominant, uh, kingdom. And the, 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 uh, I'll say it was a confederation back then, but it wasn't really even that. It was a loosely allied group of, uh, kingdoms and principalities that are today Russia back then. They were subjugated, subjugated by, uh, the Ukrainians. And Kiev was actually the center of, uh, I call it the capital. It was the center of the, the, the Slavic world back then. So, um, it's interesting when you see the interplay between Georgia, the Ukraine, and how Russia views these Central European nations, their, their cousin Slavs, as their natural, their rightful territory. Um, yes, there's the strategic buffer that they desire out of there too, but there's also, they, those countries and Russia historically are linked. And uh, so you see why Russia's got such heartburn about allowing their sphere of influence uh, to be pushed backwards. And that's why they're pushing into these countries. And that's why I don't think they're going to give up. The same reason that China will never give up on Taiwan. China will never give up on Taiwan until Taiwan is brought back in the fold because it is a scar on their national consciousness. Because as far as the Chinese are concerned, Taiwan is China. Um, so it's it's... I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a problem going back to, uh, the Central Europe and Russia thing. I don't know if that's a problem that's ever going to be truly solved. It's, it's hard to imagine that because America has never lost land that uh, used to be ours, but like the capital of Russia, you know, they used to be called the Kievan Rus. The Rus people have their capital in Kiev. And so it'd be like 500 years from now. Uh, the United States has changed its shape and we no longer have Washington, D.C. or the eastern seaboard. It's not uh, consistently the United States. There's some other country that's an independent country. Yeah, the Canadians invaded and they they control, you know, the top half of the eastern seaboard. And 500 years later, we still see Maryland and New York as like rightfully American. And the people who live there are a mix. Some of them identify as Canadians because, you know, there's been 500 years of Canadian rule in this, you know, mythical future where somehow uh, the Canadians are running the eastern seaboard. But others still consider themselves to be Americans and they still speak American English. And let's imagine that over these 500 years, the languages diverge. And so there's Canadian people. Some people speak Canadian and some people speak American. And the people who speak American really would love to see um, you know, Washington, D.C. secede from Canada and join America. Very much kind of like what happened with Texas, where you had English-speaking Americans wanting to secede from Mexico and join with the United States. And that's what we see in uh, Ukraine, where we have people who speak Ukraine, Ukrainian, who want to be independent from Russia and have had experienced terrible degradations from, you know, the Russian government over the years. Because let me say, Russia has done terrible things to Ukraine in the last hundred years. Uh, but then you also have people there who speak Russian, who identify as Russians, who really see this as their rightful land. And they're like, why wouldn't we have this? This is our old capital. We deserve this back. And it really is, in many ways, a civil war. It, you know, the way it's portrayed in the West is it's Russia invading Ukraine. 
And there is some truth to that. They're totally, you know, they totally have a side in this fight. It's not like they're a neutral observer and it's not like they're not aiding, but it's also not like you, Ukraine is united in wanting the Russians to stay away. You know, when the Russians march into some cities, they're being hailed as liberators. It's not like they're being seen as conquerors. It's very complicated. And often this finet, this nuance gets lost when it's portrayed in the press. And Russia is always seen as the evil conquering force. And they're not seen as the Russian, the Russians see themselves very differently than we see them. So I want you to kind of suspend just to see, to understand how the Russians see themselves. I want you to imagine that all of the conspiracies are true. There is an elite Illuminati that is ruling the world. They're controlling the United States. And there is one nation that is standing against the global elites. And it is Russia. They are not a part of the Eastern elites. They're not a part of the uh, Western elites. They are the North, Northern bastion of truth and manliness and courage. And they are holding out. And it's just one man, Putin, who's leading them to defeat the secret cabals that are trying to rule the world. That is how Russia sees themselves as heroes of their own story, <laughs> which I realize is very weird for us to try to get into their head. Um, and I think a little crazy. Like, I don't agree with their interpretation. Thomas, I think of there's the world, only one but real I do understand solution how they to see this the problem. We need, we need to build. An enormous Thunderdome. We need to clone a uh, Velociraptor. Donald Trump with a minigun on a Velociraptor versus uh, Putin on a uh, giant bear with his weapon of choice. You know, let him have at it. Two men enter, <laughs> one man leave. Problem solved. I think that's the only way to go. There you go. I will say the Russia problem will work itself out because Russians stopped having babies a couple decades ago. And uh, they're like dying off as a people. Ooh, I think bad choice. I think they have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. Like Russian women just are not having babies. And the ones who are having babies aren't raising their babies. There are more orphans now in Russia than there were after World War II, which is just unconscionable. Like, how is it that they have that many orphans? It's not because the moms are dying. It's because the moms don't want to raise the babies. They're just taking them to a local orphanage and dropping them off. And I've been to those orphanages. I've interacted with those orphans. And it's really sad. And it is a like fundamental problem of their country. Like you long-term cannot thrive as a country if your people are not thriving and their economy is not growing. Their people are not thriving. And that is unsustainable. If everyone around you is growing and thriving and you're not, you will be left behind. And I think um, the next generation of geopolitics is not actually going to be dominated by Russia. I think that they've been playing way, they've been boxing way above their weight because Putin's so savvy, but he's not going to be around forever. And once he's gone, I don't see Russia being much of a player. And the, the way the game is being played is changing. It's not about military force. It's about economic force. It's about the kind of shenanigans that China is pulling. And Russia is doing too, like with the natural gas, they're playing an economic game, but they're not doing, they, they can't do it well because economically they're just not strong enough. They only have oil. They don't have a powerful manufacturing sector. They don't have a powerful research and development sector. So they're not able to, you know, drop trillions of dollars in investments in Africa and like suddenly run all of Africa. China is able to do that. No problem. And I see China as being the world power moving forward, especially if we continue kind of pulling back from the world stage where if it's people aren't going to get their money uh, from America, they're going to get their money from from China. Which has a lot of American money, ironically. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, Thomas, I think. Well, yeah, right. I think, Thomas. 
I, uh, I want to bring one more point up before we wrap it up for the day is that the world landscape, when we, and I think it's a matter of when, not if, I think when we reduce our dependence on oil uh, as our primary global energy source, when that happens, I think the global political economic landscape is is you think it's bad now with you know the quote unquote trade wars uh this is child's play when all these countries that have historically relied solely on oil now find themselves in virtual depressions because they have no other uh industry to offer or commodities to offer i think it uh i think it has some very serious consequences um when that technology comes around so I don't think we should go into that because we're already at 36 minutes. And Thomas, I think you're going to say something about a sponsor. Yes, we have a sponsor, which is very exciting. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Tom Umstadt, CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. So don't let the IRS stress you out. Uh, Find out how to get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com. Dot com And I will say I can personally recommend Tom Umstadt as an excellent CPA. Uh, so check him out, uh, taxmantom.com. So with that, I am Thomas Umstadt Jr. Hammer. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. <laughs>